Take this opportunity to turn with me in your Bibles. Almost to the end of the Bible, to a little book that uh, the Apostle Peter wrote, 1 Peter. I invite you to turn there in the second chapter. And we'll begin at verse 4. This is what Peter writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. As you come to him, he writes, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture, it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobeyed the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Welcome to Keep Your Bibles Open as we consider these verses together this morning. So there was an article in Reader's Digest a while back. It was entitled, What Good is a Tree? It explained that when the roots go down, the roots of trees often touch, and in doing so, a substance is produced that reduces competition. In fact, the resulting unknown fungus not only helps link together individual trees, but will also link together trees of various and different species. As a result, an entire forest can be, and in fact often is, linked together. If only one tree has access to water and another tree to nutrients and a third tree to the sunlight, they have a means of sharing all of those resources with one another. And as a result, the trees in the forest are stronger and healthier because they are linked together. In the church, we are linked together into community through Jesus Christ. Members are unified as their relationship becomes more deeply rooted in Jesus as they discern and follow the will of God together. Members are linked to each other. They are linked to God. They are linked to Jesus Christ, and they are linked to his mission as God answers the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, holy be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. 
So being linked together increases our desire to seek God's will. It increases our ability to discern God's will, and it increases our ability to do God's will. And so it's imperative that we're able to send down deep roots. And we've talked about how to do that through things like solitude with God, through engaging in his scripture, through time in prayer, and through worshiping together. And when we do that, we find that our vitality and our strength and the authority that lies in the church become ours and are connected together. You see, discovering God's will together in community requires those kinds of deep roots, those kinds of strong connections, and the opportunity and the ability to share our resources together. In Westminster, excuse me, Westchester, Virginia, there is a stone that marks the burial place of many unknown Civil War soldiers. And it reads like this. Who they were, nobody knows. What they were, everybody knows. If they had not known themselves who they were, nobody would have known what they were. Likewise, in Christ's community, in his church, it's not about making a name for ourselves. It's about making Jesus Christ and his church known. But this epitaph also underscores that we need to know what this community, that is, this church is all about. That is, what are we invested in? Because the truth is, if we don't know, then nobody else will know either. Sadly, it seems, one of the primary reasons that the church in North America is languishing is that because they don't know who they are. They don't know what the church is all about. They don't even know why the church is important. And as a result, the church has lost its connectedness, and in losing its connectedness has lost its moorings. Today, some members say that the church's primary reason is about gathering weekly for worship. Some would tell you that the main goal of church is to care for its members. Some would say, no, the church is about a training center for fighting the injustice in this world. Some would say its primary purpose is to be a life-saving station. Some would say it's better known to be a base camp for ministering to the world. And since we're not exactly sure what the primary purpose of the church is, we struggle on agreeing its essence. And since we struggle to define the church, the church has allowed the world to define the church for them. And the world has defined the church as insipid and judgmental and racist and hypocritical and homophobic. It's just a bunch of antiquated prigs, they say, who are conspiring to impede world progress. The world sees the church as contrarian and ineffective and totally worthless. And I wonder sometime if they might be right. People saunter off to church on Sunday morning hoping nobody will really notice Christians go about their work hoping 
No one will know at the office and they'll just be able to blend in. Many, some, most of our neighbors don't even know if we follow Jesus or don't. We let the media and the entertainment industry and academia and the political arena malign us and we barely blink. The 21st century church in North America is neither salt nor light. Some years ago, one person complained and the Fremont public school system barred clergy from all of their campuses. And not one church and not one church member protested. Not one. A football coach is terminated for praying on the field after the game. A fire chief is dismissed because he's defending biblical marriage on his private Facebook page. The world is slowly marginalizing the church. And either the church hasn't noticed or the church doesn't care. Do we really know who we are? Do we really know what the purpose of the church is? The truth is we desperately need to know. In 1 Peter 2 verse 4, the apostle Peter calls Jesus Christ the living stone. And then in the very next verse, he calls followers of Jesus, you and I, living stones. That is, like Jesus, except a small S instead of a large one. And Peter says that these living stones are being built into a spiritual, that is a spirit-empowered house to be a holy priesthood with the purpose of offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. In our church, we have offices. We have the office of the minister of the word and sacraments. We have the office of elder. We have the office of deacon. And we have the office of commissioned pastor. But the office we constantly forget about or simply choose to overlook is the office of believer. In the New Testament, no preacher, teacher, elder, evangelist, deacon, elder, excuse me, leader or apostle is ever called a priest. But Peter here in these verses says that every believer is a part of the priesthood, a holy priesthood of God. Prior to the Reformation, the church expected people to come to worship. They expected people who came to worship to listen to the leaders of the church, to take the sacraments and to pay the bills. But the decisions and the work of the church were left solely to the priests and to the bishops. And then Martin Luther came along. And Martin Luther said, no, 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 no. All followers of Jesus are equally important and equally part of his church. They're equally able to know him and equally responsible to serve him with all their hearts. Every believer is an important part of the church. It is, picking up on these verses from Peter, it is the priesthood of all believers. So if we're priests... What's a priest? Well, a priest is someone who seeks God on behalf of others and seeks others 
on behalf of God. A priest is someone who seeks God on behalf of others and seeks others on behalf of God. A priest is, if you will, a spiritual servant. And that means, that means that every follower of Jesus has direct access to God and as a result is directly responsible to God for his or her relationship with him and their response to him. It means that every follower of Jesus Christ can read and engage and understand God's word as it presents the path to salvation and provides for us a rule of faith and life. It means that every follower of Jesus Christ can talk with God, can listen for his voice, and can participate in discerning his will. It means that every follower of Jesus is called to serve sacrificially like Jesus. And as Paul says, to present ourselves as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God. And so we offer our worship. We offer our resources. We offer our profession, our testimony. We offer our service. And we participate in his mission You see, the cry of the Reformation for the priesthood of all believers demanded that church members no longer be seen as spectators, but as active participants as the church. The Reformation emphasized that no office or office bearer was superior to any other office or any other office bearer, nor to the office or office bearer of believer. The authority of the church rests in Jesus who rests in the hearts and lives of believers and followers. And so as a result, when they come together, believers representing Jesus Christ delegate authority to their elders. And that authority is for them when they are meeting together. And they in turn, in our polity, delegate that authority to a classis, which is in turn delegating that authority on occasion to synod. But Peter reminds us that the church isn't really about great preaching. It's not really about inspired worship. It's not about a finely tuned structure. It's not about quality programming or a highly functional facility. Those are all wonderful things, but those aren't the bottom line. Since the church is comprised of those who have been called by God, acknowledging Jesus as their cornerstone and striving to live their life like him, the church is to be a priesthood seeking God and his will together and seeking others for God, willing to sacrifice their lives, willing to give their lives, willing to accomplish his mission. That's who we are. That's what the church is. That is Peter's definition of Christ's church. You see, definition always precedes identity. And now knowing what we're supposed to be, now we can step into it and meet that and make it our identity. So Peter says, to you who believe, the cornerstone is precious, most important, most significant. It is essential for preachers and teachers to teach truth. It is important for believers to understand it correctly and to believe it thoroughly. That is right down to our roots because what we believe 
will eventually become our identity. It is essential that we're in the word. It's essential that we strive to understand it and believe it thoroughly because what informs us, forms us. It is essential for parents to live and to talk the faith at home. It is important for children to understand it correctly and to believe it down to their very roots because it will mold their identity. In Mark 12, a teacher asks Jesus, what is the single most important commandment? And Jesus responds, love God above everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And the teacher nods in agreement. And Jesus says, you are not very far from the kingdom. Did we miss something here? Did Mark leave something out of Jesus' answer? Because Mark doesn't include anything about Jesus saying something about worship or preaching styles. Nothing about specific theological positions on particular biblical or cultural issues. Nothing about church polity. Things we often consider to be absolutely crucial. Hills that we're often willing to die on. No, instead, Jesus looks at the man's relationships. And the teacher agrees with what Jesus has just said. He says he loves God. He says he loves his neighbor. And Jesus says, then you're not very far from the kingdom of God. Jesus knows that what we believe, not just what we say we believe, but what we actually really believe with all our heart will dramatically impact our relationships. It's not what we say we value. It is what we actually really value that impacts our attitudes and our behavior. You can see what a person believes. You can see what a person values simply by looking at the words that they say, at the attitudes that they express, and by the behavior that they act out. So it is vitally important what we believe and value because eventually what we believe and what we value is who we are and who we become. If we really believe we are God's chosen people, plural, we will live like God's chosen people. If we really believe we are a royal priesthood, we'll live like royal priests. If we really believe we are a holy nation, we will begin to live like holy citizens. If we really believe we belong to God, then we'll act like we're his children. If we really believe we are being built into a spiritual house, we will purposefully and powerfully and prayerfully be building the house of God. Notice the words that Peter uses in this text to describe the church. He says, chosen people. He says, living stones. He says, a royal priesthood. He says, a holy nation. He says, a people belonging to God. Notice with me, those are all in the plural. They all understand community. By contrast, 
individualism lies at the very core and essence of our American culture. In chapter 9 of his wonderful little book, Habits of the Heart, Richard Bella talks about Sheila Larson. Sheila Larson was a young nurse who claimed to believe in God, but couldn't remember the last time she ever went to a church or had anything to do with the church. Sheila in resists the idea of committing herself to a group of people, especially to a faith community. She claims that the only religion of worth is a religion that begins and ends with self. She even has a name for it. She calls it Sheilaism. And her creed is simple. Try to love yourself and always be good to yourself, end quote. Sheila is the classic individual of our day. Her individualism is deeply embedded in her worldview, a worldview that has insidiously infiltrated the church. You see, not only do we want our burger our way, we want everything, even the church, to be our way. We might be willing to be involved in something, but only if it's kind of convenient for us, if it personally benefits us, if it doesn't require too much from us. It is not to be missed that Jesus reminds us that if we are to follow him, it will be very inconvenient. It will always be for the sake of others. And it requires that we take up our cross and lay down our life. Maybe that's why so many people prefer to attend church rather than be the church. Maybe that's why the church often looks more like a pile of stones than a carefully constructed spiritual house built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. The king of Sparta in ancient Greece boasted to a visiting king of the mighty walls of Sparta that defended his city against its enemies. And the visiting king, is he's looking around and, and he sees no walls. And he says, so where are these walls about which you boast? And the king of Sparta pointed to the citizens that were filling the marketplace and said, those are the walls of Sparta. So Peter writes, we, you and I, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we might declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Do we really believe that? Do we believe it with our whole heart? Are we willing to stake our life on it? Because you see, if we really believe that Jesus is the cornerstone, then that needs to be our identity. Once we understand who we are, what our identity is, then we can be about God's work together in his world. The early church, the church of the disciples' time, was a pervasively corrupt society. The Roman Empire ridiculed Christian values Corruption was rampant, divorce widespread, prostitution was everywhere. Girls were married off at 11 to 12 years of age. And because abortions often led to physical complications, infanticide became popular. 
Newborns were just simply tossed in the city dump and abandoned in the forests. Epidemics destroyed major populations. When a plague hit, able-bodied people would escape, leaving their children and the elderly and the disabled behind. By contrast, husbands and wives who followed Jesus were faithful to each other. They avoided divorce. Women were treated with dignity and respect. The church insisted girls be at least 18 before getting married. They didn't have abortions. In fact, Christians would go to the dumps and to the forests and rescue abandoned babies and raise them as their own. When a plague hit, followers of Jesus at the risk of their own lives would stay behind to feed and to care for those who had been abandoned. They were different. They were misunderstood. They were maligned. And they were persecuted. In 40 AD, there were only a few thousand Christians in the entire Roman Empire. 17 one-thousandths of 1% of the population. So virtually no one. 300 years later, there were 40 million Christ followers, or almost 60% of the entire Roman Empire, confessed Jesus Christ. They were a priesthood. They were changing the world for Jesus. An American, an African-American bishop rose at a recent Washington for Jesus rally. He said, I have a message from God. And many of the over 300,000 followers of Jesus who had assembled on the mall from all different backgrounds and traditions were slightly taken aback. But then it got quiet, very quiet. And the bishop continued, God says, if you Christians ever get over your fear, you will be dangerous. At a recent Inspire conference that I was able to attend, a pastor from Detroit, Harvey Carey, said, and I quote, if you see our seers, would stop spending all of your time talking and in meetings and go out and minister as God leads, you would change the world, end quote. Jesus once said something like that. Jesus said, Y'all go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And then he said again, you shall be my witnesses. Go to the ends of the earth. See, the Bible calls Christ's church to be strong and influential and convincing and ultimately transforming. If we ever realize how powerful the spirit in us is when we're together, the authority that Christ has given us together and the resources that God has entrusted to us, we can change this world. That is the purpose of church. German shepherds can be fenced in with a five-foot fence. Fully grown, they can jump over it. They just don't know it. A man on a motorcycle was tormenting a German shepherd. He'd revved up his engine and was driving this dog absolutely crazy. 
One day the dog got so agitated, he tried to jump over the fence and he succeeded. Good thing the man was on a motorcycle. Ironically, the German shepherd could have done it at any time. So can the church. The world taunts us. The world laughs at us. The world laughs at our God. The world persecutes us. How agitated do we have to get before we discover what we can do together in the power of Jesus Christ? The church, the followers of Jesus, the chosen people, the royal priesthood, we are called to listen to God, to discern his will, and then to do it together. Once we discern God's will, once the family comes together, once we commence to building our spiritual heart, every single part needs to be involved, invested, immovable. But without a commitment to community, without a spirit of indifference to our own personal agendas, without an attitude of mutual submission, and without striving for obedience, our response is always going to be selective. That is, our interest in being a part of the spiritual house will depend on whether we like it or not. And we'll be impotent. Because if we're not following Jesus with our whole heart and with our whole life, we haven't fully tapped into his power. Sadly, many stones consider disagreeing or remaining independent their right and their prerogative. Some who publicly promise to support the discernment of the community and live in community privately nurse their own anger and hurt and bitterness. Some who disagree make it their personal mission to make life miserable for those with whom they disagree. Some refuse to allow their stone to be built into the spiritual house by refusing to serve or to lead or to participate or to give or to walk the extra mile because they don't agree. Some who disagree choose to separate themselves from the community. If it isn't going my way, then I'm hitting the highway. Those attitudes and those responses break community. They weaken the house. They grieve the spirit. They taint our witness. And they diminish our impact. Sadly, today it is virtually impossible to distinguish a follower of Jesus from a citizen of the world by one's behavior and attitude, and words. So it seems to me we need to regularly ask ourselves, am I a part, am I a living stone of a spiritual house that Christ is building? Am I willing to humbly submit to the discernment of the body of Christ? How is God calling me to live uniquely as a member of the priesthood of all believers? The expression, every member a minister, which is a paraphrase of the priesthood of all believers, has gained popularity in, in a number of churches. And yet at the same time, believers are hard-pressed to explain exactly what it means. Fewer are living it out. Many church leaders simply ignore the implications. As a result, the church has lost its authority and its impact transform the world. 
The first reformation gave the word of God back to the people of God. What we desperately need is a second reformation that gives the work of God back to the people of God. The people of God need to be listening for the voice of God together and discerning his will together. The people of God need to be ministering together side by side with each other in obedience to God's will in this messed up world. You see, it's not our will that's going to change the world. It's God's will when you and I do it faithfully day in and day out here on earth like it is in heaven. Are we committed to living differently? To living holy? To living together? Of being of one mind? Living counter-culturally? Living according to God's revealed and discerned will? Living in a way that transforms this world for Jesus? Or are we willing to just be church? As individual stones, there isn't much you and I can do. People sometimes get together a bunch of stones, and, and that makes a wall. But it takes all of us together to have enough stones to build a spiritual house. The significant element missing in the church today, Big C Church, is corporate discernment. So we'll be talking about that over the next few weeks. Because the priesthood of believers is never in the singular in the scripture. It's always in the plural. Believers do not function independently of the family of God. An elder has no governing authority outside of the body of elders. Deacons serve together. Pastors submit to the elders. Believers are the body of Christ when we acknowledge our need for each other. When we acknowledge Christ is in our midst and our head. And when we're here for them. It's much easier to talk about community than to actually be community. It takes a great deal of work. Intentionality. Vulnerability. Humility. And a willingness to submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit. But God expects nothing less. Are we seeking God and his will with our whole heart? Are we listening for what God has to say? Are we doing what he calls us to do? Discerning God's will is, is crucial because as the church goes, so goes the redemption of the world. The only world, the only word the world may hear is the word they hear from you and from me and from the church. Ruth Haley Barton writes, cultivating a culture of spiritual transformation does not happen by accident. It is the result of our ability to discern the will of God together. God's will is found by those who are deeply committed to their personal spiritual transformation. It is discovered by those who are clear what the church is really all about. It is cherished by those who embrace the values of community. It is held by those who engage in the spiritual practices to keep them centered on Jesus as they live out their faith day by day. It is embodied by those who are committed to transforming this world in which we live and doing it in the name of Jesus.
See, the future of the church depends on the followers of Jesus who are willing to send down their deep roots in their relationship with Jesus Christ so they can link together with other believers. The future of the world depends on the willingness of living stones to be built together into a spiritual house with Jesus as the cornerstone. The truth is there are no shortcuts. God intentionally eliminated every one of them so that we would have to build on him. But that, that's always been his plan. Let's pray together. Father, we count it a privilege to be part of your family and a privilege it is. But with that privilege, Lord, you have given us an immense responsibility for we represent Jesus in this world. We are the vessels that are being empowered by your spirit. And you have called us, Lord, to be your priests, to be a holy nation, to be your chosen people, to live like Jesus and to transform this world. Father, it is our prayer that we might be the church for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.